Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Post Podium, the podcast where former Jeopardy contestants are instead given questions and asked to provide answers. I'm your host, Jarek Bruel, and in this episode and the next, we'll be talking about the most recent Tournament of Champions, which aired in syndication from October 31st to November 21st. Typically, the top 15 winningest contestants are invited back for the chance to compete for the quarter-million-dollar grand prize. But because seasons 37 and 38 were extremely competitive, the TOC roster was expanded to include tournament winners and the five four-day Jeopardy! champions who were nearly left out. 18 contestants played in six quarterfinal matches, while Amy Schneider, Matt Amodio, and Matteo Roach each received first-round buys and were automatically seeded into the semifinals. There were no wildcard positions, so contestants had to win outright or risk being eliminated. Instead of a two-day total point affair, the finals format was instead first to three. The first finalist to win three games of Jeopardy would be crowned the 2022 TOC winner. This meant the finals could be as short as three games or as long as seven. And if you're a dedicated Jeopardy fan, you'll probably remember that this format was similar to the one used in the 2020 GOAT tournament featuring Ken Jennings, James Holsauer, and Brad Rutter. As you'd expect, there is a lot to cover, so joining me today to unpack everything is none other than Tyler Road. Tyler is a five-day Jeopardy champion who finished the TOC as a semifinalist. I'll be asking Tyler some questions about his initial run and how he spent a year leading up to the TOC. We'll also be breaking down the quarterfinals, semifinals, and the special exhibition match between Amy, Matt, and Matea. As always, if you're interested in a specific topic, I provided timestamps in the episode description for your convenience. So, without further ado, we hope you enjoy this episode of Post Podium. Okay, I think we're recording. Let's start with an introduction, your name, the times when you appeared on Jeopardy, and how well you didn't finish. My name is Tyler Rode. I appeared on Jeopardy uh, in late October and early November of 2021, where I won five games before I returned for the Tournament of Champions, uh, and I finished as a semifinalist to the eventual champion, Amy Schneider. So Tyler, before we talk about the TOC, I want you to take me back to your initial tape day. On TV, Matt Amodio was in the middle of his 38-game run, a run that hadn't been seen since James Holzhauer back in 2019. Did you consider the possibility of running into him that day? And once you found out he lost, how did you react to Jonathan when you found out that not only had he beaten Matt, but was also at the time a 10-game super champion? Honestly, going in, I went in with the expectation that I was going to face and lose to Matt Amodio and was already writing my Jeopardy narrative as well, there's no shame in losing to Matt Amodio, but his, he was in sort of the height of his run at the time where my episode taped, and I was really having trouble envisioning how he would be stopped. Uh, I certainly didn't think he was going to be stopped by me, so it seemed like the only scenario at that point was go in, lose to Matt Amodio, and have the great story of losing to one of the all-time greats. So when we showed up to the studio and didn't see Matt, I think all of us saw a glimmer of hope, which was quickly dashed when Jonathan Fisher was introduced by the producers as not only the person who had unseated Matt Amodio, but that that had occurred two weeks of showtime prior and that he had was in the middle of a, a double-digit run himself. So uh, the, the prospects of beating Jonathan at that point didn't seem that much better than the prospects of beating Matt. But at that point, I already sort of geared myself to go in, lose, but leave with a great story. You did go on to win five games, so how did you feel about your chances of qualifying for the next TOC, considering you went on just like this incredible run across two tape days, and how did that feeling change as people like Andrew He, Amy Schneider, Matea Roach, just to name a few, made their Jeopardy debuts after you? So I 
frankly hadn't even done the math on the TOC until it was part of my intro that Mayim gave before my, I think my before my fifth game, uh, which sounds silly as a lifetime Jeopardy viewer that that wouldn't even be playing in the back of my mind, but uh, it suddenly became ratcheted to the forward uh, as soon as Mayim said that. And for a while, I was feeling pretty good. Season 37 had a relatively few number of, of champions that would have been TOC qualifiers due to, you know, just the mix of players, but also the, the interchangeable, the changeability of the guest host era. So for a while, I was, I was sitting pretty pretty on the leaderboard uh, as I was getting pushed further and further down and doing the math on how much time was left between now and the TOC, because at that point, Michael Davies had announced that it would be in November. Uh, my chances of staying in the top 15 started to look pretty rocky as not just we had these super champs, but all these five to six day to seven day champs in close proximity to each other. Luckily, uh, we got the notice that there was going to be an expanded tournament format. So uh, I wasn't able, I was able to sort of release a little bit of that anxiety, but I definitely felt there was definitely a while there when I thought I was going to be a, a five game champion and show up as the alternate or show up as maybe next year uh, as I kind of kept getting pushed further and further down the leaderboard. Yeah, John, when he was on the podcast, uh, talked about how he made like a, a chart that showed like his chances of getting in as a four-day champion, and um, how he had, he also shared the same anxiety you had of like, oh, am I gonna qualify? Am I not gonna qualify? And all of those worries were put to ease once Davies announced that he expanded the roster. So, um, totally relatable in that sense. So. Between your first game of Jeopardy and your TOC quarterfinal, you had almost exactly a year of waiting in between for this moment. Now, that might not have been as much time to prepare like Zach Newkirk, for example, but one year is still a significant amount of time. Did you learn anything about the way you played during your initial run that you sought to, I guess, correct in the t in time for the TOC? Or if not, how much more or less preparation did you put in this time around compared to your Jeopardy debut? Well, I'm sure... Uh, John Folk's model for his TOC uh, appearance likelihood is much more sophisticated than mine, which was <laughs> going back to previous TOCs and seeing the average number of qualifiers per month and counting the number of months on a calendar. Uh, I think he's better at math than me and better at quite a few things than I am, including probably Jeopardy. But uh, to your question of, you know, how did I prepare? A year honestly felt like a little bit too much time. So there were certain things I did just to sort of up my general level of readiness. Of course, I'm, I'm a daily Jeopardy watcher, although I'm a couple of days behind at the current moment. Uh, so they're, they're on my DVR. But I signed up for a couple of online uh, trivia leagues, um, including School of Trivia from Alex Jacob and Le uh, Learned League, which I had learned about in the parking lot getting ready to tape Jeopardy. Uh, so just some stuff to kind of stay ready. Uh, went out to a couple of bar trivias, including one that you and I have gone to together. But I really didn't start studying too much in earnest until probably like two to three months before the TOC, with the exception of I switched jobs and I had about a month and a half to myself, and I did a lot of J-Archive mm. in that six week of between jobs, figuring out, figuring out what I was going to be doing with my free time. Gotcha. All right, so September comes around, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the TOC competitors flew into Culver City on Friday the 16th. Am I right? That sounds about right. Who was the first person from the Jeopardy-verse you met once you arrived? 
So I showed up with my fiance, Megan, at the Culver lobby and loudly heard from just outside the Culver lobby, Brian say, is that Jeopardy champion Matteo Roach? <laughs> uh, so we, we, we ducked out and I got to meet Brian. And well, I had already met Brian very briefly in New York, got to re-meet Brian, got to meet Matea. Uh, both people I had interacted with extensively online, but, you know, the IRL meets. We also, as we were chatting, ran into Jessica Stevens, who I think was just coming back from a jog. So we, we got a bit of a spoiler on the Second Chances tournament accidentally at that moment. Uh, a small group of us went out to lunch and we ran into Sam Buttry uh, and Megan Watch Press and a couple other folks as we were dining al fresco across from the Culver's. So everyone seemed to descend pretty quickly. I think Matt showed up about the same time we were getting our COVID tests. So we, it, it, it felt very quickly uh, like we were all in the same place. Between the Jeopardy honor ceremony and the weekend before taping, what was it like getting to hang out with this legendary group of people who you might have interacted with online but haven't met in person? Honestly, it, it was really cool. It, it felt like we were, you know, maybe even work colleagues or it almost felt kind of like a high school reunion. Just we all had this thing in common. And all of the things related to that in common as well, the anxiety of prep and wanting to do as well the second time as you did the first time and having met people online but not really interacted with them in real life. So we were all kind of coming in with the same anxieties but also the same kind of accomplishments, even though some accomplishments were much greater than others, uh, mine being on the lower tier of Jeopardy accomplishments. But we, ha I feel like everyone had a lot to talk about and everyone was really excited to get to talk to each other because... We were all going through this weird, crazy experience and had had no one to really talk to about it. And all of a sudden we were in the same place and talking about how crazy this thing we we're all going through together was. Before we get into the games themselves, you were able to watch every quarterfinal, semifinal, and the exhibition match, whether you were on the wheel stage or directly in the audience, right? Yeah, that's correct. Great. So while I summarize the games and provide some analysis, you can provide us with some context that our audience might not know from simply watching the episodes. Sound good? Yeah, I'm ready. All right. First up, we have the first quarterfinal match between 16-game champion Ryan Long, 6-game champion Megan Waxpress, and 4-game champion Maureen O'Neill. And while this game was a relatively low-scoring one compared to the rest of the quarterfinals, a combined Korea of 26,000, we witnessed a pretty big upset. Megan was in the lead going into final, and Maureen was in second, close enough to Megan's score that she'd be able to win if Megan got final wrong. And that's exactly what happened. The boards were rather unkind to our contestants. This game specifically had a contention rate of about 63%, meaning 63% of the clues were attempted by multiple contestants, while 37% presumably went uncontested. There were 15 triple stumpers, roughly a quarter of the available clues in the game. And before I go any further, I'd like to ask Tyler why this might have been the case. Obviously, we won't know the true story unless we ask one of the contestants. But Tyler, why do you think Ryan, Megan, and Maureen struggled throughout this quarterfinal? Do you think the categories just didn't suit them? Was it first game jitters, a combination of the two perhaps? And by comparison, how was everyone watching this game doing as they play quietly amongst themselves? Did they also find these boards to be particularly brutal? I'm going to admit to a bit of a, a white lie that I just told you a minute ago, because you asked if I had seen all of the games. And in fact, this game was not being aired in the Wheel of Fortune set until after the first commercial break. I think there was an issue with the direct feed. Mm. So we came in at the interviews, at which point I think between the three contestants and after 15 clues, they had a combined $2,400 between the three of them and also looked like they had gone through hell. So mm. we we're trying to figure out how this had gone so tough 
because everyone just looked stressed and also the scoreboard was was quite low at this point. Looking back on these clues, I just think that it, A, it was a tough board for the contestants. I think it was a tough board for most of us in the wheel stage. Mm. I think also this group had to contend with stepping up the difficulty level from what we had done in rehearsal, which was more like a standard Jeopardy board, to the TOC board, which is a higher caliber. I think, you know, I think in the past it's talked about basically all the clues are shift adjusted by at least two to three levels. And I think that there was just a bit of an adjustment period. I think they got it together a little bit better in the double Jeopardy round. Mm. But I think this was a really just tough board. I mean, the Parliament of Vowels category remind, it really stands out to me as one that was really challenging. For whatever reason, it just didn't connect for me as a category. And I only think I got one of the questions right for playing sort of by myself. But I, I, I think that this was just a really tough board. And all subsequent games, we knew how tough the boards could be. So maybe there's just a bit of a different mental preparation uh, for the rest of us. Yeah, looking at this game's stats on geometry, I'm looking at the lead changes throughout both rounds of play, and it's absolute chaos, especially towards the end of Double Jeopardy. Until the ninth clue of the Jeopardy round, no one had any money, and it wasn't until the 19th clue that everyone had money. Megan found the first two daily doubles, but ultimately went net negative on them, losing 1,000. Ryan found the third daily double, but unfortunately lost 2,000 on it. Megan was the best on the buzzer, earning about $2,200 worth of extra opportunities to answer through buzzer timing, and she also went uncontested on about $7,000 worth of clues. Unfortunately, both Megan and Ryan had some trouble with accuracy, which allowed Marine to ride the middle and finish with the highest accuracy of the game at 93%, missing only a single $800 clue in the Jeopardy round. And I think Marine's ability to stay cool and remain calm under pressure is what allowed her to win this game. Obviously, it helps that... Ryan and Megan were slightly off their games, but I think by focusing on herself, Maureen was able to edge out a victory. Yeah, and I think it speaks to the approach, too. If you, I think Maureen probably quickly realized the difficulty level of the board and adjusted her gameplay accordingly, uh, which I think she she brought some of that forward into the, the semifinal as round, well, round as well, of just playing a little bit more conservatively and sticking to the ones that she felt high confidence in. And again, I didn't get to see the first nine clues until I watched them, or the first 15 clues until I watched them back on TV. But I think Ryan and, and Megan uh, maybe were a little aggressive at the beginning, made their adjustment in the double Jeopardy round. And then unfortunately, the double Jeopardy round for Megan, it was one of the ones where you either latch onto the right part of the clue at first and you get it right, or you latch onto the wrong part of the clue and you get it wrong. Yeah, I actually remember when this matchup was first revealed that I thought Final Jeopardy would be very interesting between these three contestants specifically because of how they approach wagering in their initial appearances. When Ryan was in the lead, there were times when he wouldn't wager to cover second, which sometimes saved him, but other times it also endangered him. When Megan was in second going into final, she was praised for her savvy arithmetic and was able to win against her opponents by a $2 margin. And with Marine, she wagered everything in three out of the four games she participated in Final Jeopardy. So regardless of how this game went down, it was bound to be an unpredictable outcome. Uh, most people online, from what I saw, had Ryan as the clear favorite to win this matchup, myself included. Tyler, you don't have to answer who was your pick to win this game, but in general, did you play favorites as the games came and went? Or was everyone in the room just so brilliant that you felt that anyone could be the next TOC winner? Coming out of the rehearsals, I think I changed my mind a little bit on who the favorite was in that I just saw the pack being a lot closer to each other uh, than I would have thought going in. I think similar to you, I know you had done a tiering on one of your earlier episodes, which I largely agreed with. I thought you were worried you were a little bit harsh on me, but I think I, I think I met, met it out okay. But I, I actually think that the 
I was expecting there to be sort of a, a, a breakaway group and then a large gap and then the Peloton uh, to use uh, Tour de France terminology. But I actually think that we were all a little bit closer together than a lot of us thought. So when we're equally good at playing the core game of Jeopardy, one of the things that you can differentiate yourself on is your wagering. And so I started thinking about who I saw as the best wagerers in the tournament. And Megan was definitely one of those, probably one of the canniest Final Jeopardy wagerers we've seen in recent years. Unfortunately, it didn't uh, work out for her, but I was I was uh, probably giving Megan the slight edge going into this game. All right, quarterfinal match number two. This one was a barn burner, particularly between five-game champion Andrew He and 11-game champion Jonathan Fisher. For this matchup, I picked Andrew to win, but I was very uncertain. In my power rankings, like you brought up before, uh, Tyler, I placed Andrew and Jonathan on the same level, but Andrew was slightly ahead of Jonathan in the head-to-head. According to the box scores, both of them made over 40 attempts to buzz in. Jonathan had the best buzzer rhythm, excuse me, uncovering five to six extra clues and picking up about $5,300 worth of extra opportunities to answer. Meanwhile, Andrew led in uncontested buzzes, uncovering about eight extra clues and picking up about $8,100 worth of extra opportunities to answer. In the Jeopardy round, Jonathan swept the crocodile pop category, netting him $3,000. In double Jeopardy, Andrew found both daily doubles, but unfortunately went net negative in them after getting the third one wrong and lost $10,000. However, Andrew remained strong and was able to finish with a score that was more than two-thirds of Jonathan's score by the end of double Jeopardy. All that mattered was Jonathan getting Final Jeopardy wrong, since Christine was in a distant third with 2200 Final Jeopardy was a triple stumper, and it played out exactly how I thought it would. Jonathan wagered to cover Andrew, and Andrew wagered just enough to finish in first, just $2 ahead of Jonathan's final score. Missing the third daily double actually worked out in Andrew's favor, because if he had gotten it right, he would have been in the league going into final, likely would have wagered to cover Jonathan, and lose to him in, a, in the triple stumper. Tyler, your thoughts on this game? From an audience perspective, just how impressive was Andrew's run midway through Double Jeopardy? And did Christine ever share how she felt after being metaphorically placed between two buzzsaws? So uh, Andrew, I think, had actually gotten in fairly late the day before. So he was running a bit of a sleep deficit uh, in the rehearsal day. And I think that had sort of carried into this game a little bit. So it was good to see him wake up a little bit metaphorically in the Double Jeopardy round. I thought a couple things that stood out to me from this game was the uh, the Eid Mar uh, Brutus double jeopardy a uh, daily double that uh, Andrew missed one of the ones where I actually think Andrew was disadvantaged by the fact that he was viewing it on the stage the coin the image of the coin was quite small and if you actually looked at the text of the clue I think he would have picked up on the Ides of March that was hidden uh, in the text of the clue mm. but as you mentioned uh, it may not have worked out the best for him had he gotten that right I also thought this was one of the tougher finals of the cat of the of the tournament just because there weren't a lot to there wasn't a lot to pin on in the clue it was about poets it was about uh, the Portland Gazette which you can sort of place into New England we get we got a time period but there's quite a few poets sort of in the greater New England era at that time so you really had to either know this particular poem or can really play some age age math really quickly in your mind. I wasn't surprised to see a triple stumper here. And I also wasn't surprised to see Andrew walk away with the, the watch press special, the $2 win. Uh, one more statistic to throw out there before we move on. Andrew was actually flawless on the clues he buzzed in on. Other than the missed daily double and final jeopardy, his accuracy was 100%, which is an even greater testament to how well he played against Jonathan and Christine in this quarterfinal match. I wish I could say more about Christine, but, you know, she was just in a tough spot. You know, Jonathan was on point with the buzzer. Andrew made that late game run in uh, the double jeopardy round. So 
it, it was kind of rough being Christine in this one. Finding the first daily double early is sometimes a, a kiss of death, especially if you find it before you've got a lot to play with. When the the margins are so are so t- slim between the caliber of the players, if you're up against two folks who kind of have a hot day on the buzzer, it you may just have a pretty quiet day at, at the podium. So the next game up is none other than Tyler's quarterfinal match against seven-game champion Brian Chang and four-game champion Margaret Shelton. We'll probably spend a little more time on this one since you're today's guest, but before we talk about the game, Tyler, you and Brian aren't strangers, as we already mentioned before. Last August, the three of us were at a bar in New York City playing trivia together along with some other Jeopardy folks when Brian was in town. I distinctly remember Brian jokingly referring to you as his nemesis and that he'd see you in LA, but... Even before this, your connection to Brian goes as far back as January 2021 during Brian's initial run. Could you tell us how the story began and how it came full circle? Yeah, I I alluded to this on on Twitter a little bit. When I was staying in Seattle over winter 2020, winter 2021 uh, with my my soon-to-be in-laws in Seattle, we were watching a lot of Jeopardy together. And Jarek, as I'm sure happens with you, or happened with you before you actually went on Jeopardy, Mm. When you're watching with Jeopardy with somebody else, inevitably they say, you should be on the show. Have you tried out? <laughs> uh, which is what my, my future in-laws said. Uh, at which point I said, well, I think I could do pretty good on Jeopardy, but gesturing to the screen, I said, I don't think I'm as good as that guy. Like, there's no chance I could beat him. And of course, that was Brian Chang at the height of his run, about to be uh, cut short by Zach Newkirk's uh, return. But Brian, I think, is you know a, a consummate Jeopardy player, a great, great guy. I think he was a huge part of why this TOC felt so collegial. Brian's one of the people that reached out to a lot of contestants as their runs started and ended, made a lot of connections between the group. Just like I can't say enough good things about him. I'm sad he's my nemesis because <laughs> uh, I, th- I think I think we could be good friends if we weren't mortal enemies. Love it. Now, let's talk about the match itself. For the record, I did have Brian ahead of Tyler before the SCC, but once I factored in Jessica and Rowan, Tyler pulled ahead of Brian in the head-to-head, so I ended up picking Tyler to win this quarterfinal match. (laughs) Well, now, here's my question. Did you account for Brian's opposition research? Because I didn't realize this at the time, but apparently Brian, who is my Learned League referral, referred me with the express purpose of figuring out what categories I was best and worst at and trying to use that information against me. Did he actually? There's no way. <laughs> There's no... Is that is that true? <laughs> He's my nemesis. No, I did not account for that. But um, that's, <laughs> that's a funny story if it's true. You and Margaret were pretty much joined to the hip this entire game. Your scores were tied not only after the Jeopardy round and double Jeopardy, but also after each of the daily doubles. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like this, and it made your watch party all the more enjoyable and thrilling. And speaking of daily doubles, getting the third daily double correct late into Double Jeopardy in the $800 row of all places was super clutch because with the way final played out, Margaret would have won since you both got it right. And man, describing this game isn't doing enough justice because you and Margaret played an incredible game. I wish I could say the same for Brian, but unfortunately, Margaret was just so dominant on the buzzer, as you can probably attest to as well. She earned about $4,100 worth of extra opportunities to answer, while Brian lost about $2,800 worth, both through buzzer timing. In addition, Margaret went uncontested on the most clues, about five to six of them, earning about $5,800 worth of extra opportunities to answer as the only contestant to buzz in. 
Lastly, Margaret ended up sweeping the novel nurses category, netting her an additional $6,000. A couple of questions for you, Tyler. First, could you walk us through your thoughts after the Jeopardy round and double Jeopardy? Like I just said, you and Margaret were tied after both rounds, so I think everyone would like to know what was going through your head as you thought about how this game could possibly end. There could be a tiebreaker clue, or Brian could actually win if you and Margaret missed final and went all in. This was a really interesting board because there were quite a few categories that each of us would have thought going in we would be very strong in, but ended up that those either didn't provide us the edge that we were hoping for or actually ended up hurting us. So obviously Brian, being a lawyer, went directly to the law to start the game, but this was not a question. These were not clues specifically about U.S. law. These were mostly fun fact geography questions sort of with a legal framing which unfortunately for brian did not sort of pay him the dividends he was hoping for similarly i thought i had the i knew i had the edge in sports over brian but i just had trouble pulling all of the mlb hall of famers in the first round obviously margaret runs away with novel nurses i think there's an interesting parallel here between this game and the previous game since you know brian i think started off kind of choppy but then uh, came alive in the in the double jeopardy round anagrams of each other I, there was like some incredible gets harmonicas and maraschinos is oh, yes, one of the gets of the one. tournament uh also his daily double sometimes they you can't tell from the edit how quickly people get these he knew the i think it was vector and covert yeah mm. he knew that one so quickly i just i don't understand how quickly he could do those um super sharp guy and then Margaret I just was just everywhere. She was all over the board in every category. It's just super fast on the buzzer. And I think Brian and I were both people who were hoping our buzzer skills would be our a bit of an edge. And yet Margaret really humbled us uh, on the bu- on the buzzer. So I was fortunate to get the last daily double and keep it close enough. I did not know the answer to this one. I had the vaguest memory of Avicii being Swedish. Spent some time thinking through if it would they would ask about a different Swedish city in a in the second round daily double, uh, or in the second row daily double. Decided that they would probably stick with the capital, and uh, turned out to be right. Probably should have remembered for my next round for my for my semifinal that they were hiding a couple of these daily doubles in the $800 clue row, but we'll get to that later, I'm sure. Oh yeah, for sure. When John Folk was on the podcast, we talked a little bit about measuring assuredness and minimizing unforced errors from incorrect responses. You finished with the best accuracy of the match at 90% and gave up only $2,400 between your two incorrect buzzes, a $400 clue about describing a house mouse and an $800 clue describing asthma. Are you the type to only buzz in if you're 100% sure of the answer, or do you take some time during the response window to think about it? I like to feel pretty confident. Uh, for the house mouse one, I had forgotten the category and originally answered mouse, was prompted to be more specific, and got a little bit confused. Thankfully, the my casting about landed on a guess that was reasonable. And then for health and medicine, it was, it was around the Greek word to breathe hard. I kind of went too hard on the Greek knowing her in uh, some Latin and Greek is, you know, thoroughly and went with pertussis. So I, I felt I felt decent about both of those. Obviously, uh, Brian and Margaret did some help, for, did some good work for me on health and medicine in the ectopic pregnancy clue, which oh, frankly, yeah. <laughs> I could have saved them. I, I could have saved them money because I did know the answer. I was just slowest on the buzzer. But again, it all worked out for me. Uh, is there anything else about your quarterfinal match, Brian or Margaret, that our listeners should know before I move on? The math on the on a final and a tie game is is you know uh, not pretty straightforward, but it's 
you know, there's some clear scenarios for it in a, in a regular season game. Mm-hmm. One thing that we were talking about a lot as contestants is that all of us kind of know wagering strategy pretty well, better than the average Jeopardy player. How does that change when you walk into these prisoner dilemma scenarios? I made the decision based on the category that I had a good chance of getting it right. So I went with the everything bet, but uh, zero was definitely on the table. And I actually think Margaret's wager put her in a good position to win. Had I gotten it wrong, she walks away with it. Or had I bet zero, she walks away with it. So uh, I know there were some questions about her wager online, but I think actually when you take into account there is some value zigging when everyone else is zagging, I think her wager... There's a world in which her wager is seen as very intelligent based mm-hmm. on how I how I could have ended up answering the question or how I could have ended up wagering. Uh, it just didn't break that way. I'm sure Brian was excited to see the tie since that kind of brought him back into contention. Uh, but yeah, sometimes they sometimes they go your way, and this was one where it just went my way. The next quarterfinal match was between seven-game champion Courtney Shaw, SEC Week Two winner Rowan Ward, and four-game champion John Folk. After a very impressive run in the SEC, I had to pick Rowan to win this matchup. Their stats were so good that I placed them on the same level as Andrew, Eric, Jonathan, and Sam. I talked about this game a little bit already when John was on the podcast, so I'll just go over some highlights. If you want to hear more about this game, including John's strategy and thought processes, make sure to check out that episode right after this. So to briefly go over this quarterfinal, John won this game in a lock and finished with nearly three times Rowan's score going into final. He found both daily doubles in double jeopardy and netted $11,000. Had he not done so, this game would have been much closer with Rowan in the lead by only $800. There were a lot of lead changes in the jeopardy round, but in double jeopardy, John took off and never looked back. His accuracy was near flawless at 96%, only answering a single $600 clue incorrectly in the jeopardy round. And he was quite dominant on the buzzer and got the most value out of clues where he went uncontested. This game could have been much closer had Roan answered one of the daily doubles correctly and could have potentially won from second, seeing how this final was also another triple stumper, the second one this week. Now, it's not like Roan underperformed. They were just getting beat into the buzzer by John. In fact, according to Geometry, Roan had the most attempts of the game at 41. Tyler, considering John's games were so long ago, were you surprised at all by how well he did? And if so, based on this game alone, did you did you or anyone else think John could win the whole tournament? I think it would have been pretty difficult to watch this game and not give John serious consideration to walk away with the whole thing. It was a really dominant performance, up and down, pretty flawless in pretty in pretty much every aspect of the game, as you just mentioned. I think Rowan came in with a lot of, you know, accolades not just from their performance in Second Chances, but Rowan's really involved in the online trivia community. I think a lot of us knew that Rowan had undergone a prodigious amount of prep, and to for John to perform this well against two extremely competitive uh, contestants and to sort of make it look textbook, all of us, I think, were, were giving him serious consideration to, to take the whole thing down. Is there anything else about this quarterfinal match, Courtney, Rowan, or John, that I might be forgetting or is worth mentioning before we move on? Yeah, I'll just say the Balkan Nations, John, I, th- I think he didn't quite sweep it, but there were some really tough ones in that category that he answered very quickly and with a lot of confidence that, again, I think really put him on the radar to take the whole thing down. One category that was surprising to me as being particularly tricky was Film Fight Marquee. I, for some reason, I thought Marquee would be the movie poster instead of just who are the people fighting in the title or who are just the main opponents in the movie and was just having trouble picturing some of these movie posters and of course realized later that wasn't the point of the category but uh was surprised that that was a bit of a challenge but also i guess it was a challenge for me as well so why was i so so surprised 
The fifth quarterfinal match was another banger, this time between six-game champion Erica Hasek, JNCC winner Jaskarn Singh, and four-game champion Jackie Kelly. Before we get into this game, and I know I keep doing this, so I apologize to our listeners in advance, could you tell me and our listeners, Tyler, why Jackie is sometimes referred to as, quote-unquote, a stone-cold killer? I saw that nickname being tossed around a few times across Twitter and Reddit. Jackie is very soft-spoken, but... I think that soft-spokenness belies, like, a real uh, competitiveness. And even just her penchant for going all in with a very quiet, under-her-breath, all of it, as opposed to, I'll make it a true daily double can, I think it just made her stand out from the rest of, or from a lot of the TOC, who are a little bit more boisterous with their play. Uh, She lets her play speak for itself, and I think was a personal favorite of mine watching on TV, I'm, I was excited for this game. I think these were three really evenly matched players. Oh, for sure. Obviously, I'm biased when I say that I would have liked to have seen Jaskarin win, but I went with my power rankings, and I had to pick Eric to win this match. He was only one level above Jaskarin and Jackie, both of whom I ranked equally. So regardless of who won, who won this quarterfinal match, it wouldn't necessarily be an upset. This game was a tight buzzer battle between Jackie and Jaskarin, creating some dramatically changes throughout the Jeopardy round. Luckily for Eric, his ability to find pivotal daily doubles, as seen during his original run, came in clutch as he was able to quadruple his score after back-to-back daily doubles. But that runaway wasn't safe as Jackie Jackie slowly whittled away at Eric's lead and finished with a score that was just over three-fourths of Eric's score going into final. All that mattered was Eric getting Final Jeopardy wrong, which, going into the TOC, wasn't impossible since Eric had the lowest Final Jeopardy get rate out of all the TOC competitors. Unfortunately for Jackie, Eric got final right. Tyler, can you describe the atmosphere of the room when Eric made that true da- double true daily double? Excuse me. I think you could even hear it on the broadcast that the air just got sucked out of the room. We were all very surprised, but also really impressed. It turns out he needed it, um, so good on him. You know, it was the right call for the for the timing of the game. He was having trouble on the buzzer. Do I wonder if maybe he kind of took his foot off the gas a little bit and lit? Uh, and subconsciously let sort of Jackie's creep back in because he he thought he'd already sealed up the win, possibly. But it ended up, he got a really nice get with this final World Cities. Uh, the clue here was that the name of the city may derive from Dur, meaning water, a reference to the Helvetian people settlement on a lake, the answer being Zurich. I thought the answer would have been Bern, uh, which also sort of has a phonetic link there. So I think there was a couple different ways that people could go. Uh, to get this right. And again, I, I if if someone had wagered for the, the triple stumper here after the previous couple of games, it wouldn't have seemed out of out of the out of the ordinary. Yeah, it was a gutsy yet necessary move because I think Eric sensed the urgency of securing a lead and possibly a lock game. He wasn't getting in on the buzzer as much as he'd like and Jackie and Jaskarn were certainly no pushover, so it was essentially do or die. I don't remember how I know this, but uh it might have been on Inside Jeopardy, but when Ken said are you kidding me? Right before Eric's second daily double, I think Eric said that Ken psyched him out a bit and made him think, oh no, what have I done for a moment? Yeah, I, I think uh, obviously once you've said it, it's it's played. I think maybe they're a little bit easier on that on Celebrity Jeopardy. But, uh, you know, it was the right call. I think Eric uh, and John had were both people who had spent a lot of their prep focusing on the daily double strategy. And uh, as you can tell from the results, it worked out for, for the best for both of them. Is there anything else about this quarterfinal Eric Descartes or Jackie that might be worth mentioning before we move on? 
Triple Rhyme Time is the best Jeopardy category of all time. Uh, love seeing Triple Rhyme Time. Would have loved to have uh, something like that at one of my games, but uh, was excited to see it make its its appearance at the TOC. All right, this is the last quarterfinal, and it was between six-game champion Zach Newkirk, SCC Week 1 winner Jessica Stevens, and Professor's Tournament winner Sam Buttry. I was leaning towards picking Jessica in this matchup after her SCC performance, but I ultimately chose Sam as my pick to win this one. A lot of people online from what I read were a bit unsure about how Sam would fare considering the professor's tournament had an adjusted level of difficulty, and that sentiment even made me question my power rankings a bit. But man, this quarterfinal quickly put any doubts I had about Sam to rest. I already talked about this matchup a, a little bit already in the episode about the SEC, so to give you a brief summary, this was by all accounts the Sam show. 52 attempts, about 8 to 9 extra clues, and about $6,100 worth of extra opportunities to answer through buzzer timing, about 10 to 11 extra clues, and about $8,400 worth of extra opportunities to answer uncontested, and a 22,600 Coriat. By the 18th clue in the Jeopardy round, Sam had 21 times more money than Zach, who was in second with 200. And from clues 14 through 17 in Double Jeopardy, Sam was the only contestant with money. By the end of Double Jeopardy, Sam finished with a score that was nearly four times as much as Zach's. I think this quarterfinal match was the best in terms of individual performance. If you weren't on the Sam Butcher train before the TOC, you definitely were after watching this game. And it's not like Zach underperformed either. In fact, if he got the third daily double correct, he would have been behind Sam by only $400. With the way final played out, Sam still would have won, but one correct daily double from Zach would have prevented this from being a lock game. Tyler, what was the atmosphere? Was it more or less the same as when John won his quarterfinal match? I'd imagine it'd be more just from how dominant Sam was from the start. Yeah, Sam was definitely a wild card in terms of our ability to predict him. I mean, obviously, there's a couple things that set him apart. As you mentioned, I'm not sure to what extent the professor tournament has a you know difficult level of difficult or a different level of difficulty, but it certainly is a different competitive group um, and hard to therefore compare to standard play. He also has the two-handed technique, although he was showing off, uh, he did have like broken or dislocated his finger on his non-buzzer hand, but was pretending that was his buzzer finger for, for all of us trying to downplay his, his buzzer speed. He rips on this buzzer. It is so crazy to watch, especially given that he's playing against so many other speed freaks, but I think Sam probably stands out as the quickest gun in the West from this TOC. I will be surprised if other people do not try to emulate his strategy of two-handed buzzing because it just works so well for him. I would put uh, John's game as probably the, the closest to Sam's in terms of how dominant it was uh, from the quarterfinals. The other thing to keep in mind is from a viewer's perspective, this was Monday of the following week. For all of us, it was the sixth game of taping after rehearsals uh, and it was a long day. And I think we were all surprised to see how sharp Sam came out just given that I think the other two contestants might have been dealing with a little bit of just day fatigue, um, but Sam really, really fired away. One thing I'll note for this game, sorry, and I'm going long-winded at this point, is we often say that if you're in the red, the only thing you can do is just play more and more aggressive because that's the only chance you have to get out of the red. Mm. Uh, obviously, it didn't work for Jessica Stevens getting back on the stage for final in this one. But we just recently saw Chris Panulo get dethroned by someone who did exactly that. Andy is sort of starting in the red, having some trouble in, in single Jeopardy, changing his strategy, getting more aggressive, and taking down a super champ as a result. Yeah, I was just about to ask uh, how Jessica was feeling afterwards. Obviously, her stats weren't too good, and she couldn't participate in final. But 
yeah, like you said, I think taking those risks to get yourself out of the hole is necessary if you want to remain in contention. I mean, you have no other option. It just seemed like a cursed game for Jessica. We didn't see it, but we had heard that she had run the category of phobias in the second chances tournament. I even think that was her anecdote for this game. And then she misses the fear of old people gerontology. It just was like, it was a cursed game for her. Uh, it just happens. That's all for the quarterfinal matches, but to round out the tape day, we have the special exhibition match between Amy Schneider, Matt Modio, and Matea Roach, the big three who were seeded into the semifinals, of which everyone had high expectations for. This episode aired on election day when most of the country's broadcasts were preempted by midterm election coverage, but if you were lucky enough to catch this one, it was quite the treat. This was almost this was almost as if Celebrity Jeopardy was adapted for hardcore fans of the show with the antics that made it to air. Of course, this includes Ken cursing after he inadvertently revealed the answer to the last clue in Number Please in the Jeopardy round, and when Matt buzzed in into a clue just to say hi to Ken. Uh, everyone must have been so tired this day play- from playing in and watching quarterfinal matches, so Tyler, do you think anyone on stage was taking this game seriously at all? I mean, Matt had a couple of negs and Matea won the game in a lock, but did you put any weight or consideration into how Amy, Matt, or Matea played this game going into the semifinals? Anytime someone beats... Amy Schneider and Matt Amodio. I don't care if it's at Checkers or Hopscotch or anything. You've got to take notice. So Matea's win here is something to be commended. It was a lock win. Their Coriat was way higher, uh, double more than double Amy's and way higher than Matt's. So I think not giving Matea their flowers for this game is does them a disservice. I also will note that when Matt buzzed in just to say hi to Ken, he still got the response correct. So, you know, these are the best of the best. So <laughs> even though they even though they were just goofing around, there was a lot of really impressive Jeopardy in this exhibition game. There was no box score for this exhibition match. So since we have nothing else to go off of, let's move on to the semifinal matches, starting with Tyler's game against 40-game champion Amy Schneider and 40-game champion Maureen O'Neill. This game was a lock for Amy and remained that way once she got the first daily double correct. She just couldn't be caught, and according to Geometry, Amy had the most attempts of the game with 47. She got the most value out of being uncontested on the buzzer, uncovering 13 to 14 extra clues, and earning a whopping $12,200 worth of extra opportunities to answer. Tyler, you probably knew this already, but your buzzer rhythm was on point in this game. You picked up 7 to 8 extra clues and about $6,400 worth of extra opportunities to answer through buzzer timing. It's just unfortunate that in your search... For the daily doubles and double jeopardy like we alluded to before they both ended up being in the 800 dollar row which went untouched until the last few clues of the game i remember watching this episode at home worried knowing those daily doubles were still out there so late into the round praying that you'd find them how did you feel after this match did you have any regrets with the way you played or not really you know if there's if there's a small regret it's that i was i was fairly certain that the 20 uh the 23rd clue of the double jeopardy round two thousand dollar clue in river run was urals I should have been playing a little bit more aggressively there. Frankly, playing against Amy just wears you out. She does not let you get into a rhythm at all. And I was just having trouble kind of like figuring out how I was going to get back into contention and took my, you know, you know, should have taken a shot there that I didn't take. But even so, both Amy and I got final right. So I have to do the math in terms of how would I have been able to be ahead of Amy going into final which would have been to get both of the daily doubles right in succession. I ended up not knowing the $800 clue in geology around that the answer for which was limestone. So I would have had to get lucky with my picks, have to wager everything, have to buzz in on a clue I didn't buzz in on. There's just too many variables at play for me to say, like, there was a chance for me to win this game. 
I'm really I'm I'm pleased with how I did. As you mentioned, I, I beat Amy on the buzzer. Uh, not a lot of people get to say that. This was one of Amy's toughest games at the, up to this point. This was her lowest Corriott score in regular Jeopardy play. So this was a game where someone could have beaten Amy, um, but it just also happened to be my lowest Corriott score uh, in in Jeopardy play as well. So hats off, she's the she's the goat 2.0. It was really fun to play against her, and I, I would have loved to sort of have it be in contention going into final, but to beat Amy, a lot more things would have needed to break my way than, than end up happening, and she's better at Jeopardy than I am. How did you feel about the boards overall? There were 13 triple stumpers in this match. Were these categories not your favorites? Were there any categories at all that you liked? Uh, Stanford Athletics was fun. Uh, I got to answer a question about my favorite women's beach volleyball player, uh, Carrie Walsh Jennings, so that was great. Uh, I, I hung. I thought I did well in the Shakespeare, although uh, Travis Andronicus got recalled against me. But I, I knew the answer, so I feel like I'll, I'll give myself at least a moral victory on that one. Supreme Court cases, not really my my thing. And then obviously, I, I drop. We all dropped the ball on Katanji Brown Jackson, which there's no excuse for. But in three named people, you do need to give all three names. And I think each of us knew two out of the three, and none of us felt confident enough to buzz in. Knowing that if we guessed it close and got it wrong, we were basically going to be teeing up a free answer to, to our competitors. So uh, it was just a you know tough board, and in a tough board, the people who know the most get get the win, and that's Amy, and she gets the win. Up next is the second semifinal match between 38-game champion Matt Amodio, four-game champion John Folk, and Professor's Tournament winner Sam Buttry. This game was intense, and there were many lead changes throughout. For the most part, everyone was pretty much in pretty much even in terms of their time value and solo value. And since the daily doubles were found early in double jeopardy, it was basically a race to take the lead away from Sam. But Sam held strong and was able to maintain his lead for nearly all nearly all of double jeopardy. The contention rate for this game was very high at 86%, meaning 86% of the clues were attempted by multiple contestants. By the end of double jeopardy, everyone finished with a five-digit Coriat score. So, like I said, a very competitive game all around. Final Jeopardy was a triple correct, and Sam emerged the victor after wagering to cover Matt. Now, a lot of casual fans on social media were accusing Matt of throwing the game by wagering zero, saying he didn't really want to win, to which I say, what? I I can't help but laugh because there's no sound logic that justifies throwing a game of Jeopardy. Matt wagered zero because he was in Stratton's dilemma. Because John's score was so close to his, Matt had to choose between wagering to cover John or winning in a triple stumper. From his position in second, he couldn't do both. Personally, I liked everyone's wagers here. Matt wagered zero, hoping for a triple stumper, which was totally possible considering how tough the final Jeopardy clues had been. John wagered 11,400, which accounts for a zero wager from Sam, and would have won him the game if Sam was wrong. And Sam wagered 10,601, the standard cover wager for Matt's maximum score. I just hate the everlasting notion that anyone who goes on a long streak on Jeopardy has some sort of ego and would rather lose and go home rather than continue to win money. Like, it's just ridiculous. Anyway... Tyler, how did you feel watching this game? Was it as thrilling as you'd hope it would be going into it? Oh, for sure. This was just a title fight between three of the best to ever do it. As I mentioned, I think John and Sam had the strongest games coming out of the quarterfinals, set up against one of the best players to ever to ever play Jeopardy. And this was just body blows back and back and forth. They made this board look really easy, which I don't actually think was a, a particularly easy uh, board. I'll give an example. So in the category 21st century bestsellers, the $200 clue was about a 2022 uh, biography of an LAV golf participant and who had made the most quotes about that, uh, about the news of that tournament, which ended up being Phil Mickelson. 
that's a $200 clue, and that needs you, that means you have to be really up on current events, golf, and recent books. So this was a hard board that three really incredible players made look really easy. I totally understand Matt's strategy here, and I think his rationale is bolstered by the fact that John and Sam count geography as two of their strongest categories. So thinking about a final Jeopardy that Matt would know, but John and Sam would both not, there's a, that's a pretty narrow needle to thread. I think betting on the triple stumper here, geography typically being a category that produces triple stumpers, this was a fine wager. It just didn't work out for him. It ended up being one of our few uh, triple gets for final Jeopardies. It was not the easiest question in the world, but again, these three make it look easy because they're the best in the world of Jeopardy. The last semifinal match we have left to cover is the one between 23-game champion Matea Roach, 6-game champion Erica Hasek, and 5-game champion Andrew He. In the Jeopardy round, Andrew found the first daily double, but couldn't put as much money on the line because, well, he had no money, since he just got himself out of the negative a clue earlier. He got it right and earned the table limit of 1,000. For most of the round, Eric maintained the lead and by the halfway point had more than 5 times Matea's score. But in Double Jeopardy, Andrew took off like a rocket. He most likely knew he had to deny Eric any chance of getting a daily double based on what happened in his quarterfinal match against Jaskarin and Jackie. And fortunately for Andrew, he found both daily doubles and went all in on both of them, creating an audible gasp from the audience and astonished looks on Matea and Eric's faces. In the span of five clues, Andrew was able to multiply his score by nearly five, creating significant distance between him, Eric, and Matea. But Andrew couldn't let up on the gas quite yet, as Eric slowly whittled away at Andrew's lead. By the end of Double Jeopardy, while it was a commendable effort from Eric, it wasn't enough to prevent Andrew from winning in a lock, a lock that was secured after the 26th clue in Double Jeopardy. Final Jeopardy was yet another triple stumper, but even if Eric went into final with half of Andrew's score, it's likely Andrew still would have won because of a small wager to cover. I remember watching this one and yelling, are you insane when Andrew went all in on the third daily double? If he had gotten it wrong, Eric would have most likely won the game in a lock instead. What was it like witnessing that moment from the audience, Tyler? I thought he was going to do it. Uh, it was still surprising to see. I think even Ken said something like, I didn't think you were going to say that. It was probably the right move mathematically to do. And Andrew has a lot of trust in his ability to play Jeopardy at, at the best level. And it really paid off for him. I'll, I'll, that, that run in like the first 10 clues of Double Jeopardy was such an impressive run for, for Andrew. There was um, a clue about the Great Star of Africa was once part of this diamond named for Sir Thomas, and it was the Cullinan Diamond, which I couldn't even rem I had never heard of that and couldn't even remember what it was to look it up later. That's just that's the kind of deep knowledge that, that Andrew has. Uh, it makes him one of the greatest to ever play the game. One thing watching these games back, it was funny to watch online the recency bias change as fans watched Jessica win second chances and watched Rowan win second chances, and all of a sudden it was, oh, I bet it's going to be Jessica Rowan and Amy in the finals. And then John has his great game, and it's like, oh, I bet John will be in the finals. <laughs> and then it's Sam wins his game. And it's, oh, I bet Sam will be in the finals. Then Mateo wins the exhibition. Oh, I bet they'll be in the finals. Everyone's a winner, a sudden, Tyler. <laughs> right, exactly. At a certain point, it's like a lot of these Titans are going to have to go head-to-head. -head. But, yeah, this was just, again... Matea is one of the best to ever play Jeopardy. I, I'm saying that a lot, but only because a lot of people who were the best to ever play Jeopardy were concentrated in this tournament. Andrew and Eric both have an extremely aggressive wagering style that when they find daily doubles, especially in rapid succession, they have the ability to just run away with it, and that's what happened here. The other thing I remember from this game is the audible groan from Andrew when he realized it was time to go to the Mandy Patinkin category. <laughs> of course, uh, Andrew claims that he just knows that these 
these clues where uh, we have a guest presenter tend to run a little bit long and can impact game time. I believe it's just because Andrew has a deep seated hatred of Mandy Patinkin. <laughs> um, I guess I guess we'll never know. But yeah, three awesome games uh, by three awesome Jeffrey players. So now that the finalists have been determined, Amy, Sam, and Andrew, who did you feel had the best shot at winning the first three finals? Ooh, I think at this point I'm 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 probably giving the edge slightly to Andrew, uh, just because I think he had improved the most from game one to game two, and even over the course of game two seemed to be heating up and just seemed like he was on that trajectory to just take it all take it all the way home. For me, the storylines and narratives of each of the finalists were so compelling that I didn't really have a favorite to win it all. I mean, the tournament featured so many good games of Jeopardy already. It really didn't matter to me who won. I mean, Sam is just a hilarious guy, as we've seen. He tried to floss, you know. Uh, Andrew's really aggressive in his daily double wagering. And Amy is just so good at stringing together these long streaks of clues and just is really good on that buzzer. So everyone had a likable quality to them, and I didn't mind if any of them won, honestly. Oh, yeah, I should clarify. I was using the term favorite in the the wagering sense, i.e. who I thought was most likely to win. I did not have a favorite in terms of uh, a one that I was personally pulling for out of these three. Ah, gotcha. Okay, good to clarify on that on that front and i will also clarify that sam did not try to floss he did floss uh oh yeah he did floss. So. <laughs> <laughs> i forgot it was the the cue was to vogue and then sam was like you know what i'll floss instead yeah <laughs> us all on our toes yep for sure he's a crazy guy <laughs> a wild and crazy guy we won't be covering the finals in this episode but don't you worry because the finals is all we'll be talking about in the next episode of post podium but for now as we wrap things up, Tyler, did everyone get to celebrate after you taped such an exciting tournament? You know, I think uh, everyone, when you lose Jeopardy, there's a moment of you kind of need it. It's just a lot to process and everyone kind of needs a moment to themselves. And I think everyone probably had a, a moment of two to sort of process their emotions. But we did do a very cathartic dinner and drinks and then karaoke afterwards with a, a good bunch of the TOCers. I think a few folks have had to head home already at that point. Um, one of my favorite memories, and, and Megan Watchpress told this story online, is we were eating and drinking at the Culver, and Amy comes around the corner with Genevieve, and of course, having won at that point, we all break out into applause uh, for Amy, and then realize we've just very publicly applauded for a very recognizable figure, <laughs> and may have just spoiled the TOC. So what we did was then just burst into similarly raucous applause, for the next four to five people who also came around the corner to try to throw people off the scent enough. And I think it worked because I didn't see this spoiled anywhere, uh, but we were all really <laughs> nervous and it just ruined the TOC for everybody. That would have been hilarious if like the next day after you tape, there's a new post on Reddit. I think Amy won the TOC. I was in the lobby of the Culver Hotel and I heard a bunch of raucous applause when she walked in. <laughs> Yeah, actually, Jerick, it actually super wouldn't have been funny. Oh, that's <laughs> it true. Would not have been very, <laughs> it would not have been very funny at all for like me and about 20 other people <laughs> specifically. Okay, yeah, when you put it that way, it would have been a disaster. <laughs> oh, man. Out of all of the quarterfinal and semifinal matches, which was the most entertaining game to watch? And is that the same game you, you enjoyed watching the most when it aired? Ooh, good question no the one i enjoyed the most watching when it aired is the one in which i won uh, <laughs> of course <laughs> so quarter quarterfinal number three i do not think that was the best game i think that 
I don't know. I'm really I'm really partial to quarterfinal four where it was so evenly matched and then John just sort of like hits the NOS and just pulls away with it. That was just so impressive to watch. Eric doubling up back to back was incredible. I think though, in terms of like the best game of Jeopardy, I wanna I wanna give it to semifinal game two. I just thought that was such an evenly matched game. Mm. Uh with such a super high combined choreate against a really tough board and everyone gets final right the person who had the most money in final wins like that just feels like how a jeopardy game is supposed to go so the matt john sam uh semi-final game i think was probably my favorite yeah i agree with you on that part i think the yeah that was probably the my favorite semi-final match to watch at home my favorite quarterfinal match would have probably been eric jaskarin and jackie that one was also evenly matched and i think it was the most evenly matched of all the quarterfinals so just those two games seeing everyone duke it out and everyone have everyone having a fair shot by the time final comes around it's just a good game of jeopardy and it's really enjoyable to root for your favorite player going into final and i don't know i was just really happy that all three did the best they could do you have any final words about your games the toc or for anyone listening before we sign off uh, final words. Be nice to talk when you talk with Jeopardy people on the internet. Uh, we're just normal nerds who got to be on TV for a little while. Other final thoughts. This T- The next TOC, I think, is going to also be a barn burner. Uh, we've got three really strong qualifiers so far, obviously headed by Chris. We've got a couple of new tournament formats that Davies has announced where TOC spots are on the line. Uh, so I think this next season is going to be the one that we really get to see Michael Davies and the new uh, folks behind the camera really start to, you know, stretch the creative muscles a little bit. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how the game evolves. I'm looking forward to it. And uh, yeah, um, you know where to find me every day at 7 uh, on 7 ABC or watching 7 ABC here in New York. So Awesome. Thank you, Tyler. Now, before I let you go, where can people find you online? And if there's anything you'd like to plug or anyone you'd like to shout out, go right ahead. Uh, people can follow me on Twitter at Tyler thinks this until Twitter completely dissolves, uh, at which point I won't be on social media anymore and I'll be all the better for it. And, uh, no, shout out to you for hosting this podcast oh, and I shout you, out to, yeah. Yeah. Shout out to you for hosting this podcast. <laughs> there you go, Jared. Thank you, Tyler. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you once again for taking some time to speak with me today. And now this is when I close out the show by asking you to please rate this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to. Postpodium is available on all sorts of listening platforms, including Amazon Music, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Spotify, and Stitcher. So make sure to follow and subscribe for the latest episodes. I've been your host, Jarek Bruel. And remember, if someone asks what you're listening to, always phrase your response in the form of a question. What is Post Podium? See you next time. Oh, 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 oh